consider closely the events we're going to look at in these passages tonight. And tonight we're going to see God the Holy Spirit working through the different characters in these passages. In Saul's life, in Samuel, in David, and again in Saul. Sometimes people don't cooperate with what God wants to accomplish, with what God's will is. But yet God always has a plan that never takes him by surprise when man doesn't cooperate. And he has a plan, and through the Holy Spirit, we see God interacting with the characters in these two passages tonight in 1 Samuel 15 and 16. We find four interactions, Old Testament interactions of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked differently in the Old Testament than he does today. He did not permanently indwell believe, all believers in the Old Testament, but rather came upon them, sent by God, the Holy Spirit would come upon certain believers to accomplish a certain task that God gave that person. And then when that task was accomplished, often the Holy Spirit would leave. Or if God was disobeyed and that task was not accomplished, as we see tonight, uh, the Holy Spirit would also leave and God would find someone else to send the Holy Spirit to to accomplish His will. And we find that tonight in four interactions, four Old Testament interactions of the Holy Spirit. And these four interactions remind us of the tremendous gift that has been given us by God in the form of the Spirit's indwelling of us as believers today. And how much power we see that we have through the Holy Spirit today if we walk according to the will of God in the Spirit obeying God rather than grieving the Spirit. And we see this principle through the four interactions in these two passages. First, we see Saul's grieving the Holy Spirit and how we ought not to grieve the Holy Spirit by disobeying God. And second, we'll see that Samuel acts for God in the Spirit. And third, we'll see David receiving the Holy Spirit. And fourth, we'll see that Saul loses the Holy Spirit working in his life in these two passages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you bless this time. I pray that uh, you'd speak clearly through this message. And also if there's any, any comments or to be added at the end or, or, or questions about this, Lord, I pray, you know, uh, as humans often our understanding of your word is limited. Um, you have the answers, Lord. I pray you, you give us your wisdom tonight. I pray that you'd speak clearly through me. I pray that we'd be able to be heard and that the, the light would not above us would not cause a big distraction as well. And it's, Lord, that we would apply this to our lives and it would be encouragement tonight, reminding us of your Holy Spirit's presence in us and how today we have such a powerful gift in the form of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And, what, and let us see what we can learn from the Old Testament um, gift of the Holy Spirit as recorded here in 1 Samuel. Bless this time, I pray. May you be glorified in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right, so 1 Samuel chapter 15. In the first 21 verses of 1 Samuel 15, we see Saul's grieving the Holy Spirit. In the first and opening verses, we see that Saul was anointed by God to do God's will 
and thus he's entrusted with God's command. Let's look at that, starting in verse 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to appoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek, Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way which he came up from Egypt. This is, also, this is mentioned in Exodus 17, 8 through 16, and also Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. In Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding Israel what Amalek did. In Exodus 17, it doesn't so much describe it as it does the battle. That is the same battle I mentioned this morning, uh, both in Sunday school and in, in, in the morning service, where Aaron and Hur lifted up Moses' hands, and while his hands were raised, the Amalekites were defeated. But there's more to the story that, to it than that. The, the directions we're going to see given by God to Saul here are going to seem a bit harsh to us. But it's because of what's recorded in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. And just to summarize it, what the Amalekites did that you're going to see referenced as being so bad that they deserve to be wiped out right down to every man, woman, and child and everything that belonged to them just wiped out. The reason is what they did that was especially despicable is they came behind Israel, the congregation, and rather than just engaging the warriors of Israel, they came to the back of the congregation of Israel as Israel was traveling toward the promised land and took advantage of making a rear assault and has targeted the children and the women and the sickly members of the congregation of Israel to kill them. And so that was considered especially wicked that they were picking off the easy targets and the innocent and the helpless among the children of Israel and attacking from behind like a coward. And so for that, God is going to uh, reveal his justice even if it's delayed justice, because, I mean, he does have justice in battle on that, uh, in that Exodus 17 passage that we mentioned with Moses raising his hands and the Israelite defeating the Malachites that day. But Moses tells the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 19, to remember what the Malachites did and that they will be wiped out. That is part of God's plan. The Malachites do not get wiped out by Saul. Because they show back up in 1 Samuel 30, verse 1, with David. So at the time of David, when David is king, they're still around to some extent. A good number of them are destroyed here, but not all of them, by Saul. And also they're mentioned again in 1 Chronicles 4.43 as still existing. And then many people believe that in Esther 3.10 and 9.24, when it refers to Haman as an Agagite, it's referring to him as a descendant of Agag, a Malachite, the king who gets spared originally here and then is killed by Samuel at the end of this chapter in 1 Samuel. And so Haman is, is often referenced as an enemy of the Jews. That's part of his title. And Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So God knows that this 
the Amalekites in particular just have it out for Israel. They want to destroy Israel. Um, and there's some like that alive today. They want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. So we see that God does not tolerate that. And God um, decides instead to wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. And that will continue um, with Haman and his descendants and many of the others who enemies of Israel who are destroyed um, in Esther, which I believe is where uh, the Jews, they got another feast out of that, um, I believe, and that's the, that's the one that they celebrate right around Christmas time, is that uh, defeating of their enemies in the book of Esther. Now let's look further here at the passage. Saul is to destroy the Amalekites because of themselves, the, the way that in which the Amalekites made themselves the enemy of Israel when Israel was coming, when trying to journey through their land to the promised land, and the Amalekites would not uh, let them do so without attacking them and doing that so in a, in a, in a horrible way. Verse uh, 2 of 1 Samuel 15. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way which came up from Israel. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Teliam, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. So this is a, uh, numbers on a grand scale here for this battle. It's a force with which Saul is supposed to wipe out the Malachites. Verse 5, And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get thee down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. All right, so far, so good. Saul has gathered the forces. They have a force that is, more, I'm sure, large enough to do the job which God has given Saul to do. And not only are they going to do it, but they're being careful not to destroy the, Kenani the Kenites with the Amalekites. And the Kenites were actually the descendants of Moses' Moses's father-in-law. So um, that's who the Canaanites are. So they, were, they had a good relationship, and that's recorded. Um, that is recorded in Judges 1.16 and 4.11 through 17, that connection to Moses' father-in-law. Moses' father-in-law, if you remember, um, not only was he the, the father of Moses' wife, but also uh, where Moses had lived in the wilderness for 40 years during the time between the, when he smote the Egyptian in Egypt and fled for his life in the wilderness, and then when he returned to Egypt to lead the children of Israel out after the 10 plagues. Uh, so for 40 years he had spent with, um, presumably with the, that father-in-law, but also after that when he's leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, Moses' father-in-law um, shows up on the scene and uh, Jethro is his name, and he gives the advice to Moses that Moses is letting everyone stand in line from morning till night, 
waiting to hear, have Moses hear their case. And Jethro says, hey, what are you doing? You know, you need to delegate some of this authority to other judges and not try to judge every case yourself. You're, you're wearing yourself out. You need to let other people uh, help you with that task. And so Moses follows that good advice of the father-in-law and other judges are appointed. And um, so that, that is the history of the Canaanites. And so Saul makes sure that they are spared and not killed with the Amalekites. So far, so good. But then Saul begins to disobey God's commandment, as we see in the following verses. Verse 7, And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refused, they destroyed utterly. And then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. So you see how much Samuel cared about Saul. It very much grieved him when uh, Saul was about to be rejected from being king. Not just of his descendants continue to be king forever, but his time, his days are now numbered because and the Holy Spirit's going to leave him because he has disobeyed God's commands here. And we see 9 through 10, Saul follows the command as long as it seems convenient. As long as it makes sense to him, he follows the command. But when it comes to killing all of their goods, he, he, everything that's good, worth keeping, he feels like that is something that they should go ahead and keep. And the people are going along with that. He later makes it sound like he's going along with the people and the people are forcing him to do this. He makes several excuses, uh, as we'll see. He's not very repentant at first. Only when he receives the real, the judgment and the consequences does he begin to act repentant. And whether that's sincere or not can be questionable as well. But you see also the, the principle of sparing the king uh, was, was a pagan principle. Remember, the, the people of Israel, they wanted to be like the other nations. And th apparently this is something other nations would do, uh, capture the king, and perhaps Saul is even thinking in his own mind, well, you know, if it was me as the king, I would want this to be done to me, so I'm going to protect myself in the future in case I'm uh, defeated in battle and hopefully, you know, won't be killed. I don't know if, he's, if that's what he's thinking here, but he, he does, it, it would seem to fit with the pattern of his behavior when he disobeys God, which is he's always looking out for himself. And uh, that would seem to fit with that pattern that we're going to see even further demonstrated in this passage. Whatever the case, it's a clear violation of God's command, whatever his reasoning, and he's going to give a few excuses as we'll see in these following verses. So God... Um, so God's command is disobeyed by Saul. And then Saul, as we're going to see in the next few verses, is unrepentant and makes excuses for his disobedience of God. In fact, at first he even denies that he's disobeyed God. Let's read uh, beginning in verse 12. 
And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is gone about and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, be, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth this bleeding of sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of oxen which I hear? So Saul brought these back to Gilgal, back from the land of the Malachites all the way back to Gilgal, where we saw, where we saw him with his first sin. Gilgal was where he had made the altar, um, well, where he had made the sacrifice before Samuel arrived on the scene, before fighting the Philistines in the last couple passages that we looked at last week when Jonathan attacked um, before, after the first attack that Jonathan made when uh, the Philistines gathered together to, to fight a great battle against Israel and Israel began to scatter. out of, um, Saul offered the sacrifice in disobedience to Saul's command and that was at Gilgal. And then Jonathan took the initiative and made that daring attack on the garrison and God used it to give them a victory that day. But it wasn't as great as it could have been because, as we saw last week, Saul continued some uh, behavior that was not trusting God and not allowing the people to eat and then, furthermore, seeking to blame Jonathan for God's not answering Saul when Saul inquired of whether they should continue pursuing the Philistines or not. And so here we see Saul brings these animals all the way back to Gilgal and Agag as well, the king of the Malachites. And Samuel came to Saul and noticed Saul's address to Samuel. Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So Saul is saying, I've done what God has told me to do. But he hasn't done it completely. He's only done it partially. He hasn't carried it out to the letter. And that's important here. So verse 14 and Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? In other words, it's very obvious to Samuel that something's wrong here, that Saul has not obeyed. Even though he's saying he has performed the commandment of the Lord, he has disobeyed by keeping the sheep and the oxen. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And that's interesting. One of the commentators I read pointed that out here. Some people don't even think that Saul was really a believer, that he's just pretending that, he's, that, he's, that God is not really his God. He uses the term, the Lord thy God, referring to Samuel. I'm not sure that's enough evidence to go off of right there. Because the Holy Spirit was working uh, upon Saul. And because of that, it seems that you know, the Holy Spirit went to work with a non-believer. But there are a lot, of, a lot of Bible teachers out there that will teach Saul was never truly a believer in God. He just was used by God the way that God would use some other pagan king to do his will. But, but you know, I think, and we can talk about this at the end, that because the Holy Spirit was working in him personally... Uh, and then leaves, and we see the same thing happen, a similar thing happen with David, where David, after his sin with Bathsheba, he writes some psalms in which he begs God not to remove the Holy Spirit from him. But I don't believe if the Holy Spirit would have been removed from David for his sin, that that means David's unsaved, that he's not a believer. But rather, the Holy Spirit comes upon certain believers, not all believers in the Old Testament, to empower them to service. 
the Holy Spirit, as we see, um, saw at Saul's anointing, came upon Saul and empowered him to work great victories for God in, through his military leadership and also to prophesy and to, and to demonstrate God's anointing upon him, that he was the man God was choosing to use to lead his nation. And then you're going to see the Holy Spirit leave Saul, and he's going to go to David. So I don't think that uh, this is quite enough, but some people point out that Saul is, is not identifying God with that, with that pronoun, with that uh, possessive pronoun, thy God. He's not saying the Lord our God or my God or even the God. He's saying, Lord, thy God, speaking to Samuel. And the rest of... Uh, our, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. So Saul, Samuel is taking Saul back to a day before he was king and, re, and reminding him, God is the one who made you king. You did not make yourself king. God made you king. Therefore, you have a responsibility to obey God's command. And if God wants to, he can remove you from being king. You're not the one that gets it's to make these decisions. God told you what to do. You didn't do it. So he's pointing that out to, to Saul. And you'll see Saul's response in a minute here. Verse 19. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea. Now notice um, Saul's next response is not, You're right. I, 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 I was wrong. Um, he, look at verse 20. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, and the sheep, and the oxen, and the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. So he's pointing the finger of blame now. You know, it's becoming more apparent that he did something wrong, but now he's shifting the blame and saying, no, I obeyed. It's the people. They did it. But Saul is the king. And, you know, we've seen him take authority before where he told everyone throughout Israel that if they didn't show up to the battle, he was going to go and, and chop their oxen in pieces if they didn't show up. Remember, if you remember that at, at one of the first battles, and everyone showed up and everyone followed him into battle. And... So he is fully capable of taking charge. He's done it before. And he clearly neglected to do that here and, per, and most likely had a, a lot of say in the people not slaughtering all the animals. Whether it was their idea or his idea, he certainly went along with it and was a part of that decision and is responsible, certainly, for that. As Samuel points out to him that he has disobeyed God. But he's saying the people did it. Verse 21, But the people took of the spoil, sheep and ox, and the chief of things which should have been utterly destroyed. And so he's admitting they should have been utterly destroyed. But he's saying the people did it. 
to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And he's making another excuse to sacrifice. And he's uh, repeating the same excuse he used at first. It's to sacrifice to the Lord thy, uh, thy God. And he uses that, term, that pronoun again, thy God, in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. So Samuel is pointing out that obedience is better than sacrifice, that we can't make up for our disobedience by givings. Um, we cannot bribe God for our disobedience. We cannot pay him, repay him for the disobedience. God wants us to obey him. And trying to do something good to make up for the disobedience does not make up for it in God's eyes. And he would rather we just obey rather than trying to uh, offer sacrifices, trying to do something bad so that we can do something good. The ends justifies the means is where Saul is coming from here. You know, well, it's okay to not obey fully so that we can do this good thing. But Samuel is refuting that principle here and saying, no, the end does not justify the means. Um, the, if the means is disobeying, the means of doing this good, of sacrificing means disobeying, then it ought not to be done. And so we see that principle here, that the end does not necessarily justify the means. And to obey is better than sacrifice. So we see that Saul is unrepentant and makes excuses for his disobedience of God. So the whole first event here, the first section of these two passages in which we see the interaction of the Spirit is Saul's grieving the Holy Spirit by his disobedience. He's disobeying God. And God is not going to tolerate that, not going to allow for that. The second Part of this passage tonight is Samuel acts for God in the Spirit. He, Samuel acts for God in the Spirit. Let's pick up in verse 13. Right after Samuel has told Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. What's it? Oh, yeah, I meant 23. Yes, very good. Uh, so, 22, at end of verse 22 is where Samuel said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. And then verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and he also hath rejected thee from being king. So there are definite consequences given to Saul right here for his sin, that, which he is unrepentant of. He is rebelling against God. God told him one thing, and he's setting himself up and saying, no, this is better. Uh, this is what I'm going to do instead. And he demonstrated disobedience before when he offered the sacrifice ahead of time and tried to justify it by saying, well, Samuel, you weren't here when you were supposed to be. And now he's saying, well, the people made me, and we were doing it for a good purpose. We were going to sacrifice to God these animals. By doing so, he's not obeying God, and he's putting something before God, which is idolatry. 
he's believing that it's better to sacrifice than to fully obey, which is the opposite of true. And iniquity, he's transgressing God's law, he's um, looking out for his own interests rather than obeying God. That's iniquity. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he also hath rejected thee from being king. And so you see the, the punishment here, fitting of the crime. You've rejected following God, so God's going to reject people, uh, your authority and leadership over the people. He's going to reject thee from being king. God gave him command. God gave him the kingship. Now he's going to take it away. He's going to take his, his authority. And uh, his, he, although Saul will continue being king for some time, his days as the king are numbered. In verse 24, And Saul said unto Samuel, so we see God working through Samuel here, Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, and thy words, which I fear, uh, because I feared the people, and obeyed their voice. Again, he's still, he's starting to admit more than he's wrong, but he's still making excuses. He's still saying, you're right, I did wrong. But it was still because of the people. The people made me do it. Uh, that's, he's still making excuses here. He obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin, turn again with me, and I, that I may worship the Lord. So notice that, that Saul feels he has to have Samuel with him so that he can worship God. He's acknowledging his mistake to some extent, but still making some excuses for it. And then Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Repeats the same judgment that he had just gave. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he, that's, that's Saul, laid hold upon the skirt of his, Samuel's mantle, and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent. And strength there may be capitalized in your Bible. It's referring to God. For he is not a man that he should repent. You know, God does not change. His character, his essence does not change. How he deals with man changes, but not because God himself is changing or even changing his mind, but rather the person has changed. Saul changed. He changed from obeying God and submitting himself to God and leading the people of Israel according to God's command to doing his own thing, to rebelling against God, to disobeying against God. Because Saul changed his behavior toward God, God is changing his response to Saul, his behavior towards Saul. From what, and, and, and this is not inconsistent with what God promised from, that, from the day that Israel chose a king. God warned them, if you and your king obey God, then God is going to bless you. But if you disobey you or your king, God is going to punish you. So this is entirely consistent. God is not changing. He's remaining consistent to what he said he would do and how he said he would respond to Israel as a nation and to their king. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, 
and turn with me, and I, that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. And, you know, based on what, what follows, you could argue that perhaps Saul's you know, repentance here is, is not fully genuine. He's trying to get Samuel to remain with him so he'll still have some vestige of authority and power still left. And, and, and he's saying so it's so that he can worship the Lord. But most likely it's, you know, for his own to save face with, with, with the people. Verse 31, So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then said Samuel, and here we continue to see um, we see Samuel acting in the spirit first with Samuel's rebuke of Saul's sin. Or Saul, Samuel boldly and with authority. I mean, Saul is a, the king of Israel. He could order Samuel executed. Of course, he does not. And Samuel, um, you, seem, you seem to see how much he cares about Saul and how he was weeping for Saul earlier. And by the end of the chapter, beginning of the next, he'll be doing the same. He really cares for Saul, and Saul seems to have uh, you know, an affinity and a respect for him as well. But you see Saul, Samuel rebukes Saul's sin, and then Samuel helps Saul to finish the job God required of Saul. You see that starting here in verse 31 and 32. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then said Samuel, Bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Malachites. And Agag came unto him delicately. In other words, Agag knows he's in trouble here. Um, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past, and Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And that may sound harsh, but it's a, it's a picture of God's justice has to be done. God's will must be done. And this is justice because Agag has made uh, many women childless by killing their children or killing their sons. And now justice has finally come upon him. And he is not just killed, but hewn in pieces as a picture of, you know, this is what you should have done, Saul. You, and perhaps there's some extra frustration going from, from, from Samuel, as I believe he's being led, he's, he's by the Spirit and acting out of the zeal that he has for God and what should have been done, and I think a frustration for Saul and that bitterness that Samuel was like, Saul, why did you do this? You know, I, think, I feel Samuel really feels for Saul and is genuinely disappointed with him as like a son, like a father would be with a son. He really cared for Saul and wanted to see him succeed as a king. And he's very disappointed, and he takes out some of his frustrations, perhaps, here on Agag, and just hews him in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And so before the Lord, I think, that speaks of his doing it for God. And uh, then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king, over Israel. So you see the, um, the way that, that God is repenting. He's changing how he deals with Saul, and he's going to bring his spirit and his anointing away from Saul and place it upon David. And that's what it means by he's repenting himself. He's changing his course of action from dealing with Saul as the king to dealing with uh, David now. And so his spirit's going to depart from Saul 
shortly here, and you're going to see that correspondence with the anointing of David. And this is a passage I preached on um, the day of the vote in, in morning service, so, but I will read through it just to give some more of the context for both the end of this passage, this chapter 15, and, and continuing in verse 14 where I last left off. And we see also Samuel continues acting in the Spirit by obeying God in setting out to anoint a new king. Chapter 16, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, and I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with thee, and say, I am come to the sacrifice of the Lord. So you can see even now, even though it's in verse 14 that we're going to see the reference to the Spirit of the Lord, you know, the Holy Spirit leaving Saul, perhaps this already even happened at this point because Samuel is saying, you know, if Saul finds out, he's going to kill me. And the Lord said, um, basically, God gives him the directions to go and make the sacrifice, calling Jesse and his sons to sacrifice, and God is going to show Samuel what to do. And he does. And you have uh, Samuel go to Bethlehem, and they have the sacrifice. So Jesse's sons come before Samuel. And remember, Samuel looks at them and says, oh, this must be the king. He looks good. Looks, reminds him of Saul. But God this time, you know, God has taught Israel a lesson by picking a man that they would want, just based on his appearance, his, his stature. He, he looked the part of a king. And so he picked someone that they would want to be king over them because they were looking at the other nations and they wanted a king like the other nations. So he gave them a king like the other nations and is teaching them a lesson here by the failure of that king that they wanted. And now he's going to choose a man after his own heart. So we see in the following verses, verse 4, And Samuel did that which the Lord spake. So he's obeying God. He's following the leading of God. And came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord, and sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And Jesse called Abinadab and made him to pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. And then Jesse made Shammah to pass by and said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. And again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And so now I want you to notice the third part of, of this passage is David receiving the Spirit. And David is faithfully serving when God calls him to lead. He's faithfully serving God when God calls him to lead. And then you also see that God chooses. So look at verse 11. You see that David is faithfully serving when he's called to lead. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. He's a shepherd. He's, a, he's doing the, the work of a servant. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. So he, um, the boy who 
you know, was an afterthought and was just out taking care of the sheep. He is being faithful with that service, and now he is being given the honor that they're not even going to sit down until he comes. And then verse 12, we see that God chooses David. You know, notice the words in the previous verses, God hath not chosen this, with the words that Samuel used to describe Jesse's older sons. But in verse 12, And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord saith, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So God chooses David. And I believe some of that appearance that we're talking about here is not like the good appearance of Saul, but more of a reflection of the inner character of David, because he's a man after God's own heart. By this point, he's probably already written Psalm 23 and some of the other Psalms and been singing them out in the field to his sheep. And so he's, he's a man after God's own heart, and that's reflected even in his, the way that his countenance shines. And uh, it's apparent you now that he, he's a good guy. And then verse 13, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon David. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So the Holy Spirit comes upon David. And that's the third part of this passage. The fourth and final part is the Holy Spirit leaves Saul. Saul loses the Spirit. Look at verse 14. And it seems to correlate to the time that David receives the Spirit and correlates much to what Samuel told Saul about giving the kingdom to his neighbor. He's taking it, he's rending it away from Saul and giving it to his neighbor, and not only the kingdom, but the Spirit as well, the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 14, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from the Lord troubleth thee, let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. So whether this is just a, a, a really dark depression in, in the absence of the Holy Spirit, I mean, just think of how the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And Imagine what it would be like to lose the Holy Spirit and the difference that we would feel to go back. And fortunately, you know, we're so blessed that that does not happen to us as believers. But God used the Holy Spirit in Old Testament in a different way. And so perhaps even just the absence of that, this dark mood, this evil spirit or, or depression and, and bitterness and regret comes upon him. And these moods come upon him. And w when they do, the servants feel like he needs to have someone there to, to help calm him. Or perhaps there is even a demonic sense here of an evil spirit um, being allowed by God to afflict Saul or because of the absence of, of God in his life now leaves him open to the attacks of Satan and for Satan to use him now that God has, is no longer using him because of his disobedience. In verse 15, uh, excuse me, um, and notice the, notice the use of, of music to calm David. Um, verse 16, Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is cunning player of a harp, and it shall come to pass 
that when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. So Saul wants you know, to, 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 to feel better as well. And, and they, it so happens that they pick David. And remember, the Holy Spirit's on David. So not, not only is David a good player of the harp, and probably when he's playing some of these musical, these songs on the harp, he may be even singing some of the psalms. It could be. And so that would be the Word of God working. And, and if it is a demon, of course, the demon's not going to want to stick around for that. Plus, the Holy Spirit is upon David. And, of course, a, a demon is going to have to flee away from that if it's a demon. Or if it, even if it's just a dark mood or depression. Uh, and, and angerness and bitterness that is helped by the music and by the presence of the Holy Spirit in David and so just being around godly people that full of the Spirit and good calming music can really affect um, the atmosphere as we see with Saul verse 18 then answered one of the servants and said behold I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite so notice his reputation precedes him. They, they see just by looking at David that he's different. He's a person that would be just the right person to come and play the harp for Saul. That is a cunning in playing. So he's, he's skilled in playing the harp. And a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and, a prudent, and prudent in matters, and, coming, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. So people could see by the way David lived and by you know, the way he carried himself and the way he conducted himself that he, the Lord, was with him. Wherefore, Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David, thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a, and a kid and sent them by David his son unto Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he, speaking of Saul, loved him greatly. I believe that's speaking of Saul there. Loved him greatly, of David. And he became his armor bearer, or, or David of Saul. In verse 22, And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass that when, that when the evil spirit from God was upon took a harp and played with his hand so Saul was refreshed and was well and the evil spirit departed from him so we see the evil spirit from the Lord troubled Saul but David is brought in to play the harp and soothe Saul and David finds favor with Saul but then in chapter 17 apparently um, David doesn't remain there with Saul and he leaves to the point where Saul doesn't even recognize him when he returns um, to fight Goliath. Um, but that's going to be for next week. And we see the great influence of the Holy Spirit working through David, that he's able to calm Saul and, and refresh him, as it says, um, to really, and the evil spirit departs from him. Although he does come back, as we'll see in future chapters, where uh, Saul will throw the javelin at David. But that's for a future week. But as we see... Now, having looked at these, three, these four interactions of the Holy Spirit in 1 Samuel 15 and 16, we see the, the power of the Holy Spirit and just the danger of grieving the Holy Spirit, of disobeying God, and how you know, rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. It's very serious. You know, it, it's 
going from serving God to serving Satan. And Saul did that, committed that sin. Samuel act for God, acted for God, uh, following God's leading, and presumably through the Holy Spirit in his life, gave that message of rebuke to Saul. And then attempted to carry out the work that Saul had not done by executing Agag and went on to obey God in anointing a new king. David, in that new, newly anointed to be king, uh, receives the Holy Spirit. And you see the difference the Holy Spirit makes in David's life and, and also just God in his life, that he was faithfully serving as a shepherd, probably writing psalms and, and apparently playing skillfully with the harp even before he's anointed king. God chooses a man after his own heart to be the king. And uh, Saul loses the Holy Spirit, but he is refreshed. He is um, soothed by the ministry of David. Uh, playing the harp for him. So we see the power through these interactions with the Holy Spirit in these passages. We see the power of the Holy Spirit and how much difference and what a great gift we have by God sending us the Holy Spirit when we put our trust in Christ for our salvation. And just the, the amazing power that we have by being indwelt by the Spirit and, and a privilege they really didn't have in the Old Testament. He would come on them for a time to do a work and for David it would be the rest of his life. And he was greatly blessed and greatly appreciated. And you see how much he appreciates that just by reading the Psalms and seeing uh, how he pled with God at the time of sin in his life for God not to remove the Holy Spirit from him and repented himself in a way that Saul really didn't do when he sinned. Instead, he made excuses and lost the Holy Spirit. So let's, um, although we cannot lose the Holy Spirit, and we can certainly make the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and through our lives less effective if we disobey God, if we are in any way in rebellion to Him. So let's make sure we align ourselves with God's will, do what God has for us to do, and let the Holy Spirit work through our lives and give God all the glory through the working and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Any, any questions, any, any comments?